So the, the past is kind of an illusion, and the future is a never a never ending empty promise of of something that's never going to come. Right? It's it's never here. The only way we will ever experience anything is right now. That's the only way we can experience anything. You'll never have tomorrow. You'll just have a thousand or twenty thousand or a hundred thousand today's. That was David Clark, and this is the Share Podcast. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast. And today I am excited to announce that we have David Clark joining us on the Share Podcast. And for those of you who don't know who David Clark is, he is a former 320-pound drug addict turned into a monster endurance athlete. His story is absolutely inspirational. He's been featured on Runner's World, CBS, ABC, NBC, ESPN. He's been on the Rich Roll podcast twice and has recently interviewed Rich Roll himself. As a matter of fact, the same day that I interviewed him, he had just finished his interview with Rich Roll. It was just so cool. I loved it. And of course, if you haven't checked out his book out there, A Story of Ultra Recovery, it's a number one bestseller. I'm sure you'll want to pick that up after you've listened to his amazing story. We dip and dive into so many topics. He's got a massive amount of energy. He's super positive. He's just an amazing human being and was absolute honor to feature him on the show. So now let's dive into David's story. But first, if you'd like to know what's the best way to help support the show, here are a few of the best ways to do so. Number one, you can donate to the Share Podcast. And to do so, you simply go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com, and click on the top right corner of the website that says Donate, or you can click on any of the yellow banners throughout the website that say Donate via PayPal, and it will take you to our Donate page. There you can donate via PayPal, Patreon, or Bitcoin. All the donations we collect go exclusively to promote, grow, and produce the podcast. So what you will find when you click on the donate button is a list of all the production costs associated with producing the show. So once again, if you have the wherewithal to do so and would like to donate to the Share Podcast, then go to the website, click on the donate button, and make your donation today. The second way to help support the show is to subscribe on your mobile device. If you listen to the Share Podcast on your phone and you click subscribe, you not only get notified every time a brand new episode is available, you also help support the show. When you subscribe, it dramatically increases our rankings on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, as well as other podcast platforms on the internet. And while you're at it, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and review because I love to read those reviews at the beginning of every episode. And speaking of kick-ass reviews, I'm noticing one here that looks familiar. The author is Mrs. Falk, and the title is Inspirational Human Life Experience Specialists. Hmm, I wonder who this could be from. And Mrs. Falk writes, Thank you for your foundation. People using your platform to help other humans with their amazing human life experiences. To see how connections between two or more like-minded people can better the quality of fellow human life is an inner spirituality that compares to nothing on this earth. 
What a spectacularly eloquent way to describe what it is that we do and the impact that the share community is having in the world. And we are going to continue to do so for years to come. HP baby, I love you all. And the third way to help support the share podcast is to share the podcast with your friends. If you love the share podcast, if you're getting value from the episodes, then share them on your social media network, share them with your friends at meetings and help us spread that message of hope and recovery. And while you're recommending the podcast, also make sure to invite your friends to join us on the Share Podcast Facebook private group. There are thousands of recovering addicts that are positive, helpful, and being of service. So if you're not ready to go to meetings or you need an addition to your meetings, then this is a perfect place to get support and be of service. So go to Facebook, type in S-H-A-I-R in the search bar, share private group, and the private Facebook group will pop right up. Now a quick message from Transitions Daily and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hey, David, thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, thanks for having me. I am very excited to have you on the show, man. How you feeling? I feel great, man. I feel good. Man, you sound good, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so folks, today we have David Clark joining us on the Share Podcast. And David went from owning an $8 million business at the age of 29 to the depths of addiction, obesity, and bankruptcy. At 34, he reinvented himself, climbed out of the basement of life, and to the top of the ultra-running world. Clark is now a nationally renowned speaker and the best-selling author of Out There, A Story of Ultra Recovery. That sound about right, David? Actually, no. It sounds kind of made up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's my life. That's my life. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, before we dive right in, first, um, I just want to give a shout-out to Heather Jesperson, one of uh, Share Podcast listeners who hooked David and I up, man. So thank you so much, Heather. You know, David, if you want to give her a little quick shout out. Absolutely, Heather. Thanks for the hookup and hope you enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed watching you run around the hills and stuff. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So listen, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you is uh, I'm, I'm also a really big fan of, of Rich Roll and the Rich Roll podcast. Um, oh, cool. And before this, before we got on the phone right now, uh, you had an interview with Rich. Now, were you interviewing him or was he interviewing you? Strangely, this time I was interviewing him. I've been on his pod uh, twice, but this was for a, uh, a documentary that I've been working on. So tell us a little bit about that documentary. Yeah, it's, it's called Hellbent, and um, it's about uh, extremism, and it's about addiction and what does is there such thing as going too far even even in a world of extremes and can you lose yourself in the pursuit of excellence and we just want to have a conversation and get as many perspectives um, on that topic as possible man that is fantastic i think we can get addicted i think we can get addicted to almost anything 
Um, so I think sure. it's a, I think it's a fair topic, especially since uh, the world is designed to get you addicted, get you hooked in, and get you buying stuff, right? Yeah, and it, it kind of occurred to me somewhere, you know, like a smack in the head that um, my experience kind of made me uniquely qualified to have to maybe <clears throat> inject that conversation, you know, being formerly 320 pounds and in and, and 12 years sober, but now in recovery, you know, doing extreme ultramarathon running and, and taking on MMA and stuff like that, that you know, that's from the outside. I can't imagine what that looks like, but it might be good to invite people inside uh, my head and everyone else's head for a while and, and see see where it goes. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of intensity there. It just sounds like yeah. your life, you know, life is one adrenaline boost to another. You know, it is on the surface, man, but it's also very peaceful. You know, I mean, for me, that's that's one of the things Rich and I talked about earlier today is that, you know, I, I think that and we're just kind of really jumping in right here, guns, guns blazing. But, you know, I feel that human beings tend to accomplish what's at the top of their list. And I had to make sure that happiness was at the top of my list and that whatever's underneath that, whether it's MMA or ultra marathon running or, or whatever it is, that happiness is the ultimate goal for why I'm pursuing those things. So that for me, that I don't lose myself in that process. So, well, on that note then, what does your normal daily routine look like and do you include recovery still in that? Oh man, Re- recovery is the absolute, you know, north star of my journey, you know. Nice. That's that's where my happiness comes from and and I don't have anything without that. And you know, I actually almost feel like you could when applied correctly, you could take the word sobriety or recovery and replace it with the word happiness. Because if you haven't done that, then all you really have is abstinence, you know, and and not drinking really doesn't do much for me, really, if if I'm not learning how to be happy. You know, yeah, it's going to it's going to, you know, cut down on the trips to jail and, and, you know, eliminate some of the drama. But to what purpose, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. So so take us into your normal daily routine. Like, what do you do in the mornings to get yourself primed for the day? I work so hard to not have a daily routine, a normal routine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I do. I, I mean, I dedicate a little bit of time to meditation every day. And, and not only in the conventional sense where I sit and calm my mind and breathe, but also making sure I create gaps between whatever it is um, that I'm doing. You know, I feel like we tend to make our days one giant burst of activity, you know, and waking up and taking a shower and eating breakfast and driving to work all becomes, you know, one activity without any gap between it. So I like to like eat breakfast, you know, and then have five deep breaths before I open my emails and then take a couple breaths before I drive to work. And, and you just try to keep, keep those gaps in place so that it allows my mind to kind of reset and focus from activity to activity. But I own a gym, you know, so, you know, I, I still write. I got a second book that I'm, I'm wrapping up now. And, you know, I, I kind of try to pack a lot, or I don't know if I try to, but I, I do tend to pack a lot into my, my days, you know? Oh, no, I, 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 I get that. I get that. And, and that's why I ask because, you know, as we, as our recovery shifts and as our life changes and we get to a point where we can actually 
take advantage of this cleanness, of this sobriety. And so we start to evolve as a human being. And, you know, when you're someone who is as busy as you are, it's a good time to ask, you know, especially for our listeners, is like, how does somebody like that find the time to do like the, the most basic things, like get up in the morning and, and pray and read and meditate and just get their, get their day going? And, and more importantly, how important is that in your life? Yeah, well, I mean, kind of like what I was saying, like happiness at the top of my list, kind of like I don't leave much space for what happens if I don't do it. You know what I mean? Because the other things have to come second. So like everything that I experience in the course of, of one day, I approach from the idea of, you know, how can I find happiness in this? So I don't need to be busy. I don't need to be not busy. I just need to be happy in whatever it is I'm doing, you know? And like, I think we have this kind of, uh, I used to kind of get it mixed up to where, you know, I always used to want to find, find whatever I love to do, right? Like we're taught that from kids, you know, like find whatever you love to do and then do that. And it's kind of bullshit, you know, <laughs> because anything you love to do at one moment might become something you dread <laughs> at a future day, you know, and we can turn a job out of anything. So I try to go from that point or that perspective of I got to learn to find the love in whatever it is that I'm doing. I got to find the love in whatever's in front of me. And then I'm always going to be happy though. And then if I can pursue what I'm passionate about, if I can be happy doing anything, but I'm choosing what I'm passionate about, to me, that's, you know, that's the keys to the kingdom right there. Yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, for somebody who is, well, first of all, how much clean time do you have? When's your, and when's your anniversary date? August 5th, 2005. I have a little over 12 years. And on October 5th, God willing, it'll be 4,444 days. <laughs> and I know that because I like, I, I like to do things on numbers. Numbers mean a lot to me. So, All right. Well, after you know, 12 years of continuous clean time and sobriety, um, how is it that you maintain, uh, how important is it to maintain that spiritual condition? And, and what kind of spiritual condition or spiritual practice do you have personally? You know, the, my 12-step work and my, my journey towards, you know, finding a more balanced self has kind of morphed into a pursuit of the uh, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. You know, um, I'm a, a practicing Buddhist, but I'm a, like a heavy metal-loving Buddhist ultra MMA fighter who says fuck a lot. So I'm not really sure what that means. <laughs> It it makes sense in my mind, you know, like to me, it's all about the process of letting go, right? Like that is to me the essence of the spiritual journey. It's about not needing to control the outcomes, but being willing to work really hard to make a better day. Oh, I love it. I love it. So then um, I'm really curious because I didn't know you were into MMA. So I am a huge (laughs) MMA fan. I love you know, big fan of Joe Rogan, you know, oh, yeah. so, so I've been watching MMA for many, many years, but I can't say that I remember seeing you in the octagon. So, so where are you in your MMA career currently? I am a, a fetus, a swim, a sperm swimming towards the egg. <laughs> good, good, because I was like, dude, I watch a lot of MMA, and I don't remember seeing David in the ring. <laughs> here's what here's what happened, man. So, like, um, as the I've been also an MMA since MMA fan since 
to UFC one. Okay. And, um, through a strange set of circumstances, I've become really dear friends with Pat Militich and he kind of is looking for that next challenge in life. And he got the idea of doing a hundred mile race. So we kind of made this pact where he's training me to step in the cage, which is something I always wanted to do. Something I felt like maybe in another life I might have gone more that route than the running route. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, and then I'm going to train him for the to race 100 miles. So we're doing that, and and I've been training MMA for uh, not quite a year. Okay, all right. So the plan is he's training you right now to get in the octagon. But are you looking to do this? professionally or is this just something like this is something like really cool i've always wanted to do and, and it's kind of like where you're at at the moment yeah i mean no i'm not i'm i mean i'm 46 i'm not under any delusion okay. of, of becoming a pro fighter but um there's probably nobody i wouldn't be willing to fight that thing said <laughs> <laughs> just a, balls to the wall man <laughs> just like well you know because it. it's about it's about tackling fear uh-huh. right like, like to me that's uh, fighting mma to me has always occupied two spaces and it's like something i've always wanted to do and something that's that's kind of horrifying as well <laughs> And if I'm scared of something and I want to do it, I don't like to let those things live in the same space too long, you know? Yes. So so I think I'm just in it for the experience, but, you know, I don't want to fake it either, you know what I mean? I don't want to just, like, pop in a cage and fight some tomato can so that I can check it off my list, you right. know? Right. Okay. Matt, it's all about the authenticity. Okay. I got it. I got it. This is... It was about the opposite of that, right? It was like it was about the projection, right? And it's 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 got to be the opposite of that, you know? Of authenticity? No, it used to be like it used to be before I got sober. It was all about projecting ah, something, yes, an image and what people think, and you know, now it's about like you said, just being authentic, whether anyone will ever know. You know, I'd go fight Conor McGregor, you know, even if no one ever saw it. You know, just because I want to know what would happen. It probably wouldn't be pretty. (laughs) Man, (laughs) it's probably one of the last guys I'd want to get in the ring with (laughs) being authentic. (laughs) I'll tell you what, though. I would rather fight Conor McGregor than Pat Militich. I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) That guy's a scary, scary man. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, good. All right. So listen, um, I definitely want to gravitate all the way into that. Because there's yeah. so much of your story, um, so so let's dive right into that, okay? And then and then we'll start talking. Uh, you know, as you start telling us your story of recovery, um, then we can we can really deep dive into what you've you know what you've accomplished, uh, you know, over all these years, over these twelve years. Uh, so what I'll do right now is I'm going to turn the show over to you. Uh, David, I want you to share your story with us, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, David, please take it away. Yeah, man. Um, You know, for me, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol were always kind of looming, you know, in, in the distance, you know, but... I didn't jump full in until in my late teens, you know, like my first experience with alcohol. And I didn't really even know this, honestly, till I wrote my book and I was forced to kind of, you know, pull it all out of the closet. But my first experience with alcohol was I was about 13 years old. And, you know, I went to party as my older brother was there. He was 17. I was 13 at the time. And I like pretended to drink all night. I like walked around with a prop cup 
and pretended to drink, but I was afraid to, right? They talk about that, you know, for checking, right? But the weird thing is, as I left, I grabbed a bunch of alcohol, some some beers and stuff like that, and took them with me. Mm. And I drank them by myself, which is a really unusual thing to do, I think, you know? Yes, I, I would say. Yeah, and, and that was my first experience with alcohol. And then you know, I didn't really get, you know, drunk, you know, because I was still kind of very afraid of it. But about a week later, or two weeks later, I went to another party. And that time, I just got shit face drunk. You know, I was doing shots and like, partying like I was a rock star, you know. And then I probably didn't drink again for, for several years. I don't even honestly remember. And then throughout my teens, it was like one of those things that I could kind of take it or leave it you know i didn't really have access to it but when it was around i i tended to go too far and then i came to california i came to la in my late teens and i just man i i jumped in and i had not any drugs at all it was only alcohol i used to tell people you know i don't do drugs i don't do any mind altering things was my my classic line <laughs> never mind the fact that alcohol is mind altering but somehow that <laughs> truth was lost on me i know the, i know the feeling <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all truth was lost on me, actually. But um, you know, I turned down cocaine and stuff like that maybe a hundred times or more. And then one night I just said yes, and that one yes sent in a, a you know set in motion a chain of events that you know was a long twenty year spiral deeper and deeper and deeper into addiction. And you know I spent about six months in California barely sleeping, man, doing coke, doing meth partying four days at a time and then crashing for a few hours and then partying some more and, you know, playing music. I, I was, uh, you know, wanted to be a musician and, and just trying to like live out my Jim Morrison rock star fantasy, you know, and it all kind of came crashing down on me after a while. And I ended up like using my, myself into, I, I had pneumonia and I was just wrecked health wise. And I ended up like bedridden with the, with the pneumonia for like two months. And and I kind of, I stopped. That was kind of like my first, first alarm bell, right? The yeah. First ring yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, it was funny because it did kind of have a dramatic effect on me. I, I quit smoking at the time. Um, and I kind of, that's the first time I started like trying to integrate fitness into my journey. And an interesting sidebar to that is that, you know, a lot of people nowadays think that somehow running and fitness saved me from addiction. And it just doesn't work that way. And I thought I could do that in previous years, but it, it never worked. Well, we'll go back to that, I'm sure, later. But I, I got into the gym. I started working out. I got healthy. And I found abstinence. But I never found sobriety. Mm. You know, I never found recovery. I never found that center. So I like in my book, I described it as I walked out of that room that I was locked in. But I never locked the door behind me. You know, I, I left it open. And I didn't walk back into that room until, you know, a couple years later. But when I walked in, when I walked back in, I fucking shut that door and locked it behind me. You know, <laughs> like, there was no getting out. And, you know, I was very disconnected from society as a, as a, a youth. You know, my dad was, um, had some hard times and we traveled a lot up and down the East Coast and I wasn't, I was pulled out of school and I was homeschooled for years. I didn't have that real connection to, to community. And, 
Um, so when I, when I got into my, my late teens, early twenties, I kind of planted some roots in Colorado and I went to college and worked my way. I got a GED, you know, worked my way through college selling mattresses of all things. <laughs> There's definitely some times where I'm like, what, what the fuck is going on in my life? You know, from like, I'm a mattress salesman and strangely, like I, I worked my way through college and then I ended up getting into the mattress business. I ended up purchasing a chain of stores and taking over a, a failing chain of stores and turning it around and making a lot of money. And all of the sudden, all of the things that I thought were the reason why I wasn't happy in my life, you know, that connection to community and money and success and affluence and all of these things that I felt I needed to validate my existence. You know, I was 29, I owned 13 stores, I was doing $8 million plus a year. And I, you know, my life was, was on the surface, you know, good, you know, luxury boxes and, you know, new cars and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I just kept getting more and more lost in it. And I had kids, which was just another blessing. It's like, now I'm going to be a father. And my wife was pregnant with twins. And it felt, it just felt like, like the whole world had, the universe had aligned for me to be happy. You know what I mean? Like all of these things were there for me. And then I was, you know, staggering around the house, drunk at 3 a.m., basically looking out the windows and cussing at my neighbors, you know, because they knew some secret to life that I didn't know. And you know how that works, man. You can only keep those plates spinning for for some some period of time before it crashes. And yep. I, I lost it all. And it's funny, you know, you you, you describe your, your rock bottom day. And to describe your rock bottom day for me was to describe – every single day for the last five years, you know, like there, nothing dramatic happened. And in fact, all of the times where something dramatic happened, where you'd have thought that would have been my last day, <laughs> right? <laughs> Those just made me drink more, you know, going to jail. And, you know, I talk very honestly in my book about, I read a lot of, you know, memoirs and, and sobriety stories, you know, like Anthony Kiedis's story from the Chili Pepper and and different athletes and you can almost romanticize that you know or attach your ego to those drinking days right and I didn't want to do that in my book you know I went after the stories that I could remember that were the most humiliating to me you know that 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 stripped that dehumanized me to me you know what I mean the ones that that just hurt you know, the ones where you wake up and you, you feel like less of a human being. And, you know, one of those was being so drunk on Christmas Eve that I couldn't wrap my kids Christmas presents. Mm. And, you know, and that's where I was and that's where I lived. And, and you'd have thought that that morning I would have woke up and said, fuck this, I'm done. But I kept going and kept going. And one morning I woke up and I just I knew that it was either change or die. Mm. And I wasn't sure which one I wanted. You know what I mean? Like I felt that I was right there at the edge, but I still wasn't sure if it was if which way I wanted to go. And, you know, I, I've talked about that before that like that ultimate surrender that we make. Right. I finally realized this is it. You know, I'm, I'm in too deep. I'm not I'm not going to figure this shit out. You know, like if I was going to out, it would have happened. by now. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't because I wasn't trying how to be a, a normal drinker or what have you, you know, I was trying really hard and 
But um, I, I finally reached that place where I was like, my surrender to me wasn't an act of, it was, it was accepting there was going to be a fight. You know what I mean? Like surrender was accepting you're getting your ass kicked, dude. And you either going to roll over and, you know, to use MMA terms, you know, just let this dude pound you out and yep. choke you out or, or start, start bridging out and look for some light, you know? And I didn't know what that meant, but I figured, you know what my kids are for. And I had this thought that if, if somehow I could figure this out, if, if I could get better, that I could show them what a comeback looks like. You know, and I could teach them and save myself. I could teach them that there's no such thing as too far gone. And that that was enough light in that dark place that I started crawling out, you know. And, whew, um, yeah, that's emotional, man. Um, and that was it. That was, um, I didn't know what to do. Went to AA and went for a run. And the running was more than any just kind of became this like affirmation of if I could get myself to go to the gym and a run for me looked like 15 seconds of running and then a minute of walking, 15 seconds of running, a minute of walking. I weighed 320 pounds at this point. But if I could do that every day, it almost like proved to me that I was serious, that I was going to follow through. You know, I did the math one time. I, I, I promised myself every day that I was going to quit, right? I promised my my wife, my friends, everybody, the mirror that I was going to quit, that I was done, that I was going to start taking care of myself. And I averaged out, if I did that 200 times a year for 15 years, that that's 3,000 times that I promised myself only, only to immediately quit on myself, like a day later, an hour later. You know what I mean? Yep. And so I had no belief in myself. I, no, no, my, my ex-wife, nobody believed that I was going to get clean because why would they? I didn't believe me. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like if I could go do this run thing that I was like convincing myself that I was serious, you know, and running didn't save me, but it created this bridge gap. You know, it interrupted the process long enough for me to go to AA and figure out that I wasn't a 320 pound alcoholic by accident, you know, and that that something else needed to, to be addressed. It, it wasn't the drinking. It was some other thing. And that was it, man. That was that was the start. That was the rock bottom. So so man, I I can relate to so much of it and I know that that horrible feeling of incomprehensible demoralization at the end where you don't know whether or not you want to get clean or you just want to die because both are not attractive options. You want to keep the run going, but you realize you can't. It's too much wreckage, it's too much work, you're tired of it all. And you just wanna you want it to stop. Yes. But sometimes the only th the only the the easiest way to do it, because that's what we think, is just just die and just to not exist anymore. So so we're not causing any more wreckage, but we also don't have to put in the work because that's that's what's coming next. Uh, you know, a whole lot of a whole lot of pain. So so you made the money as a mattress salesman. <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer bed peddler, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> just such a I'm just picturing one of those ridiculous commercials where you're like the mattress king or something. Did I you was, was, I did, was that you? I was on TV doing that shit. Yes. Were you fat when you were doing those? Yeah, fat as fuck, man. <laughs> I even had a pinky ring. Oh, 
dude, just, 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 you pulled out all the stops. I did, man. I did. Oh. I don't know how to do anything halfway, I guess. <laughs> Knucklehead or nothing. Oh, man. How many years did you run that gamut? The, the mattress salesman, the king, you know, the mattress king. Oh, God. Um, I mean, it was, it was a relatively meteoric ride. I mean, it was pretty quick, maybe six or seven years, something like that. You know, like flame out, you know, like go high and go low. I mean, it was 9-11 that really – we were doing well enough. And it's interesting because the business me all in and alcoholics are high functioning, right? We're we're wily, crafty, a type driven people. Lots of addicts are. Yes. And and I was like that. The business kept me kind of, you know, one toehold into reality, you know, from from not going all the way in. But after nine eleven, we went from doing, you know, three quarters of a million dollars a month in sales to three or four hundred thousand overnight. Oh, and, so we we lost almost a million dollars from September to February, and then things started to kind of turn around. But that put us into such debt so quickly that it was a spiral we we couldn't climb out of. And then we, you know, not a, a big. We ended up selling, and then the people we sold to ran it into the ground and pulled us into bankruptcy with them. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, that, that, but I think that there is this correlation for all of us too, because I, I believe personally that as addicts and well, I mean, just people in general, right? We all, we all have a purpose, right? We all have a purpose on this earth. Um, and you know, everything that we go through is an experience as a learning experience that teaches us the next phase of our life or gives us gives us gives us the tools that we need to get to the next phase in, in our life and once that once that time is up or once you've served you know once you, once the school of life has served its purpose you know it, it's just going to crash on you right so so no matter what you do at that point right i think it's just inevitable that it's going to come to an end and it has to come to a very abrupt end to get your attention i don't know if if you follow that logic no totally like i mean Every moment in my life where it's felt like my world was ending was was the was actually the birth of my world, you know, like because like, because we're never going to grow to your point until we have no other option. Right? we'll never know how strong we are until the only option we have is to be really strong. Yes. And that's why perpetuating the illusion of comfort is such a problem for addicts and it's funny because Rich and I were talking about this. He's like, well, what do you say, you know, when someone reaches out to you and says, you know, hey, you know, I read your book and, and I'm struggling and, and I really want to quit and I can't seem to stop. What do you say to them? And because Rich gave me his what he does and it's a really political kind of, you know, n- nice answer. And, and mine is not, you know, <laughs> mine is like, well, that's easy. Your life's just not bad enough yet. <laughs> <laughs> what was Rich's <laughs> answer? <laughs> He laughed, you know, I was like, that's the difference between New York and LA, right? Like, <laughs> and Rich does the thing where, and you know, we're both coming from the same place of love, right? We both want to help the person. But for me, I, I, we do this thing where it's like, I know I did this, like, it's meant to be an exercise of gratitude, but we go, well, you know, it could always be worse. And at least I haven't done this, or at least I never wrecked my car or, or hurt anybody or whatever it is. And we say it could always be worse. And that's true, and you should count your blessings, but your life is really, if you look around at how painful it is, you're going to see a lot of pain. 
And until you hold on to that pain and and see the reality of that pain, you are not going to move out away from it. So stop looking at the bright side and start looking at how shitty it is, you know? And I'm a really positive guy, but you need to wake up and, and look at this pain because otherwise it's just going to get worse. How bad do you want it to get? That's the question. I want to go back to what you said originally. So if somebody asks you that, what is what is it that you respond to them when, when they're in that much pain? The reason you haven't quit is because your life's not bad enough yet. Got it. And then and then I say, that sucks, doesn't it? Because you know, they're like, well, yeah, like, you know, my wife left me or I, I just got fired or whatever it is. And it's like, I know. How fucked up is that? That you're there and it's still not bad enough. Because the reality is, and I'm saying it from a place of love, right? I'm not saying it to be confrontational or to be a jackass. And I follow that up with, you know, with, with, you know, more conversation. But it is the reality. Like when the pain of staying where we are is greater than, than the pain of, of changing, we, we change. We do. That's what human beings do. And you don't even have to think about it. It just, it's a natural mechanism. It's like, this is as bad as it's going to get for me. So I'm changing. You know what I mean? And then in that in that birth, then you look away from it and you're going to, you know, then you that's when the person needs the support and the help and the guidance. For those of us who've been lucky enough to get out to kind of share what we've been through. But once they're searching for the light, we're going to find it. Yes. Yes. But if, if you're sitting in the dark telling yourself, no, I can see fine. <laughs> this is fine. This ain't so bad. I come from that school of. I come from a really tough love environment because uh, I got clean 14 years ago. So there wasn't a lot of coddling. You know, it was a bunch of old kajis in there that uh, had no yeah. patience for bullshit. So if you yeah. weren't ready, they'd say, look, I don't think you're ready yet. You need to go back out there and lose some more shit. Yeah, go drink. You know, because right. you're, you're just not, you know, obviously you're not ready for this, right? Um, and I, re I remember that. I think that there, there is, I think there is a place for that. And, 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 you know, like you say, you follow it up with, with some love and you say, Hey, listen, you can do this, right. But you know, here's what you're going to have to do right. to really change. Right. Um, and if you're not willing to do that, then obviously you're not done yet. Well, yeah, because like, honestly, like I, I am actually very compassionate and but I'm also, I know that I can't, if I'm not helping anyone, if I'm going to help someone make change in their life, it's going to only happen if I come from a place of truth and a place of love. Yes. And if taking them in and wiping the blood off their face and, and giving them a place to sleep and hugging them and telling them it would be okay would be the, the thing that would help them find sobriety, that's what, what I would be doing. You know what I mean? To me, it's, it's what is ultimately going to help someone. And as is, is much as it just breaks my heart to see someone struggling with addiction, I know that I can't tell them that it's okay. You know what I mean? I have to tell them the truth. Yes. And I have to tell them they're the problem. And that is the most compassionate thing I can do. So even though it is tough love, and I've had to go through this with my own brothers, my own people in my family, you know, it's hard, but it's it's ultimately the only thing that's going to save anybody is truth. It's truth. I could not agree more. And anyone who's not an addict and listening to this may have their own opinion, but someone who is an addict and recognizes that for many of us, it's 
the people that were enabling us all those years that prevented us from hitting our hard rock bottom you know, sooner than later. So the longer that you're coddled, the longer that you are hugged and told it's going to be okay and, and I will help you, the more that you manipulate and the more that you string out this bottom because you have, you know, more rope to hang yourself with. So, so yes, I definitely agree that at some point you have to be real. You have to come with them with truth and say, how is what you've been doing and your way of thinking been working so far out for you? You know, how's this been working out? And if it hasn't been working out, you know, then, then what is it that we're going to, what's the next move here? And, and it can't be, you know, one of your brilliant ideas. Yes. And that like the only way you can deliver that truth, because I don't know what the truth is for someone else, right, is to find the truth in me. So like I have to make sure that if I'm just, you know, bringing the tough love, but I'm not bringing that from that, that true authentic place inside me from a place of love, right? Like there's such a difference between telling someone, hey, man, I can't, I can't take you in because, you know, you're an addict and, and you, you need to start taking control of your own life and saying the same thing, but explaining where you're coming from, from a place of love, right? Like, man, I want to take you in. Right? You don't want to say that to an addict because you, you, especially if you're an addict, you know as soon as I say that, that person's going to want to come here. You know what I mean? Oh, like, he's going to move right in, pick out his room. You know what I mean? Start rearranging the kitchen for sure. Yeah, and I've had to do that like with my own family. It's like, dude, as it kills me to say it, but I want to take you in, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that that's not because I don't love you. It's not because I don't believe in you. It's just the way it is. And as much as I'd like to just you know, I can't come at him from a place of resentment or, or frustration or anger or or me trying to manipulate the system. You know, like I'm trying to manipulate his thoughts. I can't do that. That's what an addict would do, right? I'm just a sober guy. Yeah. <laughs> like I've got to come from a place of authenticity and just say, here's where it is. You know, here's exactly where it is. Cards on the table. There's nothing that I'm thinking right now that I won't share with you. Yes. And I've defined my entire rock bottom, like, because it sets up this kind of weird competition thing, like, oh, you're a high bottomer and I'm a low bottomer and you, you know, you house, but you never went to jail or whatever it is. You know, to me, the only rock bottom in my mind is death. So if you're not going to die, you should just get out now and stop worrying about when rock bottom's coming. You know what I mean? Like, are you taking it to death? Are you all in? And if you're not, then let's just do this now because you're gonna have to do it one day. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm a big. I don't. I don't like that whole comparing ourselves to others, right? Like, who's got the worst bottom? I think it's very counterproductive and counterintuitive. We're supposed to be supporting each other and encouraging each other. Uh, to take the next right step, not, you know, go, well, I guess I'm not done yet, right? Because I didn't do this. So I better go do this first before I come back. No, if you're done, then let's just forget about what's happened. And let's talk about what you got to do today, right now, moving forward. Yes. And you get to choose when you're done. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You choose it. So let's talk about the rise from the ashes because, you know, you're 320 pounds, you're, you know, you're, you're rock bottom, you're done, you're decided this, I, I can't do this anymore, your business is crushed, you're going into bankruptcy, and now, on top of all that, you've got to go through 
year one of sobriety. So walk us through that. Yeah. So I, I came to the conclusion, and this really is the, the essence of, of the book I wrote, the essence of, of my story, I think, is that I, from the ashes, looked up and realized I didn't get here by accident, that it was my thinking that caused me to get to this place. It wasn't bad genetics. It wasn't bad circumstances. It wasn't my business, my childhood, anything. It was just how I saw the world. And that was kind of a hard pill to swallow because, you know, you know, I mean, I was the smartest man in the world. Just all you had to do is ask me <laughs> and never, never mind that I'm a 320 pound alcoholic. You'll just, you know, let's put that aside for a second. Other than that, I got this shit figured out. <laughs> and, and so it's hard to let go of that. But, but that's the beauty of, of accepting rock bottom, right? As I did, I didn't care. It's like, you know what? I'll, you know what? Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm probably the dumbest man in the world. Like wouldn't the wouldn't the dumbest person in the world actually probably think they were the smartest? Yes. Like, that makes sense to me, right? Like, I got it. Like, I am, I am totally the dumbest person on the planet. And all this time, I thought I was really smart. And I, I really decided that uh, since I wasn't supposed to be a 320-pound alcoholic, you know, I, I, I realized I got off track somewhere. And during my my the real active parts of my addiction, I thought that I was exactly just that, that I really was. This is who I am. You know, I, I attached all that stuff to my identity. You know, I I'm the guy that I'm Big Dave. I, I, I don't lose weight. You know, I party hard. I work hard. I party hard. And I had all of this stuff kind of really attached into my identity. And and I think addiction is some form of an identity crisis in some ways or or like I call it um, a, a a search for happiness with a poor sense of direction, right? Like I was trying to be happy, but I thought all this stuff was part of who I was and I couldn't carry that with me towards happiness. So I had to separate that and say, it isn't who I'm supposed to be. Maybe I was supposed to be a really good endurance athlete. Maybe wow. that's what the universe had in store for me. And I just fucked it up. And that would make sense to me because I'd fucked up everything. So it makes sense to me that I fucked up who I was supposed to be. And I really did kind of play that game. And it was like, so I'm going to keep going to AA. I'm going to take the steps. I'm going to listen to these people who I would have never listened to in a million years about anything. <laughs> I'm going to take their advice. I'm going to assume they know something I don't know. And I'm going to go to the gym and I'm just going to run every day and see what happens. And the beauty of that is that I didn't, you know, really participate in a lot of thinking other than what supports this new idea. What supports this idea that I can become this endurance athlete guy? And the things that supported that were, you know, being clean, eating healthy, working out, you know, doing these things. So... I just attached onto that journey, you know, and to get there immediately, I just wanted to be that person. You know, I like, I wasn't interested in running a marathon. I wanted to be the type of person who could run marathons. And that was more important to me. So I, I just kind of reconstructed my, my whole concept of self. And that's what I wrote about in the book. And the beauty about that is I realized how malleable that concept of identity is. And I, I have tweaked that many times over the years and, and honed it to the point where it's just I, I like to view myself as a seeker, you know, and, and I can seek enlightenment and peace and happiness through anything I choose to, whether it's MMA or running or anything. And but running was the was the big part of it for, for many, many years. 
So, so you come in, but here's the thing, and 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 for for people that are listening, right? Like, what are you weighing now? Uh, hundred and sixty. Okay, hundred and sixty pounds. You lost over half of the weight. It's actually like four times of the weight if you my ego. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to be at least six bills back then. Like. <laughs> But but to think to think that you're weighing 320 pounds and you're just coming in, you kind of give the overview now and we see where you're at. But what did it feel like? I mean, what did your knees feel like? What did your back feel like? What was your head telling? Was your head telling you every day, man, we're right on track. You know, we're really we're fucking we're really crushing it now. Or what was that like in that, you know, as you were progressing, right? One pound at a time or or or, or how was that? Yeah, man. No, no, that, that's exactly what happened. Like I, you know, I, I twisted everything around. Like I I said, insanity, the being willing to be crazy is a really powerful tool, you know, and we can use that to, to produce leverage, to change in our lives. And yeah, man, I, I, it hurt, you know, it hurt to run. I couldn't do it. I sucked at it. It wasn't this beautiful thing where I went out and the, the, clouds opened up and the sunshine came out and I felt that runner's high. It was mostly trying not to vomit, you know? Okay. <laughs> and, that's what I want to hear. But you know what? I, I attached new meaning to that. You know, that was, that was the price I had to pay. You know, that was part of being an athlete. That was part of the journey. This is, this is, and the beautiful thing about that is that, you know, especially once, so the journey became really like, as I'm trying to find and in, in, in navigate my way through my first year of sobriety, I'm training for a marathon. Mm-hmm. And so I'm doing the spiritual work. I'm doing the inventory. I'm, I'm trying to make amends. I'm trying to restore relationships and, and learn how to be honest with myself and other people. And I'm also running and you know, building up slowly. This small little work was becoming big things. And it was happening in my running at the same time it was happening in, in my sobriety. And, you know, all these tiny little things each day were turning into, okay, now I can run 20 minutes a day and now I've run three miles a day and now I have 90 days of sobriety and, and I'm, I, I can wake up in the morning and like know that, you know, I'm not hiding anything, you know, that, that I'm not like, I'm not waking up afraid of being exposed somehow, <laughs> you know, like, like I'm living a, a true authentic life. I went through and I, I lost almost all the weight in the first year. You know, I actually went down to about 180 pounds and stayed there for a while. I ran my first marathon and it was it was a great amazing experience, but it was really just the the tip, the starting point of of a way of looking at life and a way of of navigating through self-discovery that really blossomed after that first marathon. And that's I guess what we're going to talk about, but you know, it was it was really more. Uh, I, I look at that year as 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 learning how to live life. At thirty five years old, I had to learn how to live. I didn't know how to just sit in place or put myself in a painful situation. You know, like that was the beauty about the marathon. Right, is I chose to go run twenty six miles and inflict pain on myself, and I did it. I didn't quit when I had spent all of that time, my whole life trying anything to avoid being uncomfortable. Mm. And that was creating discomfort in my life because I was running from being uncomfortable. And here in the marathon, I chose to keep running while my legs hurt. I chose to keep running each day in training while my body was pushing back against me. And, and you know, I, I learned that in the rooms. 
Like, right, like running didn't teach me how to be sober. Being sober taught me how to run because each day I wanted to use, I wanted to go back, I wanted to take the easy way out. And I was learning I couldn't do that if I, to, to be sober. And then I was applying that lesson from recovery in running every day. Man, that is absolutely beautiful. That's exactly where I was going with all this. That's exactly what the message is to all the listeners. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a drug and alcohol treatment counselor. And man, it's like being uncomfortable, right? Like they, it's like everything bothers them. Everything, I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable, not even for a second, right? And it's like, that's not how it works, this is not how this works. Life is not about, you know, leaning into your comfort zone to be the best version of yourself, right? It's stepping out of your comfort zone, right? And doing things that you never imagined you could do simply by just going one day at a time. I'm not going to quit. I'm just, I'm just not going to quit. And you apply the principles of the program. It's the same thing. I want to get high every day. I want to get high every day. But just for today, I'm not going to get high. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to put on my running shoes. My knees hurt. My back hurts. I'm going to get up and run. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the, the lack of being willing to be uncomfortable that, that the new the person in recovery is so, has such a hard time with is actually the problem. Yes. You can't overcome it. That's the problem. If I knew, if I, if I saw that, like we said, right, you'll never know how strong you are until until the only choice you have is to be really strong. Yes. Like once I figured out that making the emotional stakes really high and leaning into that pain, when I when I could see, if I could ever see the beauty in that process, I would have done it sooner. Uh -huh. That my my inability to take the fearless step was keeping me in the dark. But it's all a process. Right, it is. Yeah. You, you don't know what you're going through at the time. If I just tried to run a marathon, man, like that would lasted. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way running is going to save someone from from addiction. You know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna. It, but it can, it can. There's there's value to it, right? It's a tool that you can use. But when you're looking for the easy way out, whether it's swapping or replacing or anything like that, that's never going to work. It's a house of cards. Like. And that's ultimately where I had to get in, in the purpose of the documentary is like, well, okay, great. You know, we're real impressed. You've run hundred milers and shit. That's awesome. But what happens if you can't run? You know, are you still happy? <laughs> and, and it took me a while to get to the, to the place where, yeah, the answer is yes. At this stage of the game, if there's, there's nothing you can take away from me, that's going to change my happiness. And that makes it real. So where does the, where does the happiness come from? Happiness, the only way that I know where it comes from is from choosing to be happy for no fucking good reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way I know how to get happiness, right? Because I, I if if you're searching for it, you know, if you're if you're if you're looking for happiness and, and your eyes aren't closed, you're not gonna find it. <laughs> you know, it, it's internal. Uh. It's not out there, man. It's it's just not there. Like you know, I was a big proponent in business of the law of attraction. Yes. And and we all know the law of attraction works. We've seen it, mm -hmm. right? Yep. You can attract money and wealth and fame and and business opportunities and good people and all these things, but you can't use the law of attraction to get happiness because happiness isn't out there somewhere to attract to you. It's already in you. You have to open it up. And that means 
having that as your guiding light and protecting it so that it's the filter at which you run everything through. Oh, I just lost my business. I can't let that touch my happiness because that's the most important thing. Businesses aren't real. Businesses fade. Businesses are impermanent. Happiness is real. Why would I give up my happiness because I lost my business? That doesn't make any sense. Man, that is beautiful. It is a choice and it is inside of us and I love it. That is perfect. So now you've got the year, you did. You ran the marathon. When did the light bulb go off and say, okay, now it's time to pivot. Now I'm going to become this elite <laughs> athlete. Now I'm going to write this book. Like, you know, wh- where's the pivot on all that? Yeah. <laughs> the reason I'm laughing is because the pivot was... I got two herniated discs in my spine and I was told I'd never run again. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, I that, that's a little disingenuous. I wasn't told I would never run again, but I was told I should run again. Right. Um, I hadn't done any ultras yet. I was two years in or so. I wanted to do, I'd done Ironman. I'd done several marathons and I'd caught the ultra bug and you know, it just happened and I couldn't, it was really pretty brutal. Um, I wrote about it. It was, it was the first time I feel like for that first two years, my sobriety, my weight loss, you know, my my new life, everything about it was kind of, you know, interwoven, you know, and I wasn't really sure where one started and the other ended, you know, and the injury and being forced to look at what my life looks like if I can't run really caused the greatest spiritual growth I've had because I had to look at that. You know, I had to look at that. Like, so because you, you, you know, like here I've, I am injured. I have doctors pushing narcotics in my face. Like they're a TikTok, Tic Tacs. Mm-hmm. Like, where were you guys, you know, three years ago <laughs> when I would beg for pain? You give me like two Percocets, you know, and now they're like, here's a prescription. You think 240 will be enough? <laughs> you know? And, but I had all of that pain medicine and I didn't take it. I didn't want it. And then, but even more importantly, I had this like kind of big exit, right? This big, beautiful exit in front of me. You know, you, if you choose to take it, you can walk away from all this. You can say, I did, I did marathons. I made a run for it and I got injured and that's just the way it is. Now I take my prescription and I go to the bar and I get to tell all of the amazing stories of all the adventure I had had for the last two years. Mm. And, and you know that like, that's a pretty, that's pretty compelling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is. That didn't sound too bad, but, but you know what? But I'd learned how to fight by that point. You know what I mean? And I I was like, fuck that, fuck that. You know what? Maybe I won't run again, but not because you say, right. And not, not because I'm going to lie down. So I surrendered it. You know, I was like, yep. Okay. I have to accept that that's a possibility in my life. I had surgery. I, I, we had the surgery and did the rehab. And I started immediately training and I'm like, I do everything I can do to get to become the best athlete. I want to turn my body into a machine. And if it, if it comes great. And if it doesn't, that's fine too, but I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to, I'm going to see what happens. And that's when I became a vegan. That's when I changed my running form and I started doing all this core work. And it was a long, slow road back to recovery that eventually led me to, to running the lead to 100. And that's, that's kind of like the big, you know, the big impossible that, that I wrote out there about was that journey. Right, right. And so, so I'm curious then as you were going through this, right. And as you made that decision that you were just going to make, you were just going to become the best 
athlete you could under the circumstances, despite the discs, right? You were just going to push through and then just leave, you're going to leave the results in God's hands, right? Yep. And so you say that this is where your spiritual journey really catapulted. Now, is that when you got into Buddhism? Yeah, it was It was kind of hanging around there. It was something I was curious about and something I, I've always been an avid reader, but I couldn't make... So there were certain aspects of them that appealed to me greatly, but the whole concept of attachment was something that I struggled with because at that time it seemed... Um, it seemed cold, honestly. Like it seemed, it seemed coward-like. Like to be afraid of losing something, you know. So, so I'm not going to be attached. To it. I really misunderstand what that meant, you know. Now I see it that, you know, being not attached to something not the same as being detached, right? If I'm detached, I just don't care. You know, if 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 I'm detached from what you're doing in my life, it's because I don't care. If I'm not attached to it, it means that I'm going to allow you to be whoever you are with no expectation of how you're going to behave. You know, I'm not going to project myself onto you and then get pissed off when you don't match up. Right? And it took me a long time to figure that out. And the crazy thing is what really enabled me to do that didn't fully come into effect until um, 2013 when I, when I got divorced. And, and then I, I really, that put me in a, in a place where I had to really figure out, you know, that was the, the next kind of real step in, you know, it's like, go bring back full circle to where you and I talk about there's, we always kind of take things as far as they'll go. And then it feels like they fall apart. And that's where we really get onto the next level, you know, and it was hard for me to deal with because it felt like, well, the Hollywood narrative is right. I got sober and I got all these things back to me, and then I'm supposed to live happy ever after. You know, why am I getting divorced five years in? Well, what was it? What was what was the what was the catalyst to that? Because I've had this discussion too in other interviews, where it's like when you get to a certain point in your recovery, and you're still married to the person you were married to prior to getting clean, something happens. There's something happens. You know, either either there's a, a an epiphany that happens, or or you know, dysfunction seeks dysfunction, and maybe you're not dysfunction anymore. What was the catalyst for the divorce? You know, it's it's a really you know these things don't happen. You know, there's there's never one catalyst, right? There always appears to be one, but it's really what leads you up to that point, or a thousand other things. Mm-hmm. And you know, the reality of it is. You know, I put a lot of damage and distance between us, you know, while I was actively using, you know, I was a selfish, you know, uncaring person. And even though I would have argued adamantly against that at the time, it doesn't change the reality of it, you know, and, and, you know, I think my love was very, you know, narcissistic in a sense, you know, that, that, uh, that I loved my ex as long as she was, you know, letting me do what I wanted to do, you know what I mean? And, and so we, we tried to find each other, you know, once I got sober and we did find each other as, as human beings and we're still great friends today. And, but we never could find ourselves as a couple Mm. and, and that doesn't last very long before other things come into play, you know? So, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate casualty of, of my addictive period, but in that period where we were find trying to find each other again in my sobriety we had another child you know that we wouldn't have otherwise so there's no way that i could consider it anything other than than a gift you know even though it didn't go the way we wanted it to certainly not the way i, I envisioned it 
But and that's the point, right? That's how I found the Buddhist real, um, the real uh, understanding, at least as I see it, Buddhism is that even in my recovery, I had created a future for myself, and and no futures are guaranteed, you know. And that I created this future, and when it didn't happen, I was mourning the loss of something that was never going to happen. You know, and it's bad enough that the marriage ends, but then you're mourning this big, empty loss. It feels like I didn't just lose a marriage. I lost, you know, my kids coming home from college and visiting us in the house and growing old together, you know, and all these things. And like, no, those those are impermanent. Those are promises. They're whispers. You know what I mean? Like it might have gone that way, but it didn't. And and had them find that really coming to the place where I could I could see life and make it right and and understanding the difference being able to control to control the future and change it are two different things we can all change it we can change it if we don't like where we're going but we can't control it man that is super insightful and very powerful very powerful statement and i think that that's one of the things that has always attracted me to buddhism as well is like um one of the first things that that in early recovery uh, somebody had said, you know, there was a, an old Buddha saying that says, you know, at the root of all suffering is attachment. And yeah. I remember hearing that and just it just resonated with me. And to this day, I still refer to that. I still refer to that um, because exactly what you just said. But I had never put it in that context. And I love the idea of of realizing that you're mourning for a future that was never meant to be. And that is one impactful statement man i absolutely love it lots of value listeners <laughs> there's a lot of value going on here <laughs> well you know and it, it was born of self-preservation you know because i think if i couldn't have made that leap i might have been in jeopardy of losing my sobriety yes 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 that makes so much sense we as addicts we're so intense we're these super intense people we're super sensitive you know and and when you no longer have the drugs and alcohol to numb all the feelings that we feel at a 10x level as opposed to normal people then when these things happen and our expectations are not met, especially big dreams, big expectations, big aspirations, and things don't come to fruition, then you raise your hands up sometimes. You go, well, now what do I do? And what's it all worth? And what was I working for all this time when you don't realize that life is just a journey? And every single journey has different stages along the way and those are all opportunities for growth and for change absolutely man that's 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 how it works um and i think this is beautiful i think that you know when we talk about living one day at a time you have to man great to have dreams and aspirations (laughs) but if they don't pan out just for today okay it wasn't meant to be so now let's let's move on to you know the next thing right it is interesting right like we we always say that like live one day at a time this is what we should aspire to but you say that as if you have some fucking choice <laughs> like, like i don't know anyone who's ever lived tomorrow like the only means and i'm laughing at myself i'm not laughing at in anyone who's listening right because like this was lost on me and and it's like the past is not accurate, right? We don't, we don't, our memories don't serve the point of, you know, creating historical versions of what happened, right? Like we arrange the, our memories in ways that make sense to us, but they're not necessarily accurate, right? Like, so the, the past is kind of an illusion and the future is a never, a never 
unending empty promise of, of something that's never going to come, right? It's, it's never here. The only way we will ever experience anything is right now. That's the only way we can experience anything. You'll never have tomorrow. You'll just have a thousand or 20,000 or a hundred thousand todays. And you don't have any choice in that. The only thing you can do is, is ignore it and create suffering. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. And I could not agree more. That's, it sometimes just takes that small insight that you've always had. We, we've always had it. Yeah. We discuss it all the time. You know, you got one foot in the, one foot in the past, one foot in the future. You're pissing all over your present. We talk about it all the time, but man, do we, when, when you're, when you're in a quandary, when you're stuck, when you're worried, when you're in fear, it's because you got your foot in one of those places and you're not focused on where you're at right now. It is like, I think the birth of all wisdom, like you, you know, you've probably like learned something impactful in your life. If it's followed up with, Oh, is that what that meant? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I never learned anything that I didn't already know. Yep. Oh man. That's another one. (laughs) No, anything (laughs) I didn't already know. God, so much truth. So much truth. All right. So, so now you've got, you know, you, you got divorced. You, you're, you're, you got yourself into a maximum amount of health. Um, and so you were able to start running, obviously. So you were able to, to start to get back on the road, uh, running, so to speak. So what was that journey like once you got to that point where we're like, okay, we got a green light here. Let's go. You know, it's interesting. Like, so I finished my first hundred miler and in the process, you know, I wanted to do something that I thought was, was, you know, really on, on the edge of what I thought was impossible, you know, not, not impossible for everyone else, but impossible for me. And I I really wanted to be vulnerable to that, you know, and, and do something that I had a really big chance of failing at. And, um, I got it done. And the interesting thing is though, I, like I did it and I kind of painted myself into this corner where I used to, I used to say even to people like, oh yeah, you know, trying to be humble, you know, people are like congratulating on you on your accomplishments and things. And they're like, yeah, you know, people do it fast. You know, I'm just trying to finish it. I'm, I'm a back of the pack athlete. You know, I'm a, you know, playing that game. And, you know, I, I did that. And, and all of a sudden one time it just kind of hit me out of the blue. It's like, that sounds a lot like 320 pound day. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, now I'm an ultra runner, but, but I'm not a good one. Mm. This, and so I didn't like that. And, and it's funny because one of my favorite training runs is um, this route up to Bear Peak. It's this really big trail run in Boulder. And the first time I did it, it almost killed me. And and I went back there every day and, and just started doing it. And I, and I actually did it 12 hours nonstop before my first Leadville. And so anyway, I went back to the top of Bear Peak and I sat there and I kind of you know meditated a little bit on that thought. And it occurred to me that you know maybe the fact that I'm just a back-of-the-pack athlete, maybe that's just another – you know, identity prison that I was building for myself. And so I decided I'm going to go back to Leadville. I'm going to do it again. But this time I'm going to like take off the reins in terms of limits. Like who cares what the limits are, but I'm not going to create them, you know, before, before the fact, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to just assume limits. So I'm going to train hard. I'm going to go in there and, and let it rip with no fear. You know, and it was amazing because 
I ran it five hours faster. And, mm, wow. And, and I, and I did really well. I, I got a, a sub 24 buckle, which is a really big deal. And then the very next race I did, I told my friend at the time, I was like, here's the deal. I'm going to win this thing today or I'm going to blow the fuck up. <laughs> and either way, turn on the camera. You know? <laughs> and I fucking won. <laughs> And it was amazing, you know, it was like, it was this, oh my God, I almost painted myself into this prison. And I'm not trying to say now that I'm, you know, Scott Durek or Rob Carr, there's they're certainly all these guys who are way faster than me, but, but I was so much better than I, than I would have ever known if I'd have just assumed that new identity limit. Oh, you know, man. so it was a kind of reminder that like, Hey, we all do have limits, but we create them. Yes. Yes. I spend a lot of time on that topic, limiting beliefs. We all have them. It started at an early age. It evolved, it evolved and morphed into all kinds of different beasts and just yeah. kept pounding us into the ground, right? Holding us back. And one day you just woke up and like, I can't do shit. Like, where right. did that come from? Like, how did it get so, how did that demon get so strong? Like, well, you've been feeding it your fucking energy your whole life. <laughs> how do you think it got strong? <laughs> what, you know, what, what is your, if somebody says, Hey David, you know, how do I bust through my limiting beliefs? You know, what do you tell them? Well, y you have to let go of them, right? Like stop creating them. Like so many times we think, well, how do I let go of the past? You know, how do I, how do I got all this pain? I got all this hurt. And it's like, well, stop carrying it around, right? Like, don't worry about how to get rid of it. Stop fucking carrying it. That's a good step, right? Like, in little thing, it actually, even though it's a subtle change, it does, it does kind of bring that to the light, right? It's like you're carrying this with you. It's not, it's not there for you to defeat. You're carrying it with you everywhere you go. So if you're carrying it with you, then that means that every single thing that happens, like maybe you do good on a training run, we're talking about running, you know, you're, you do good on a training run and then you look at this limiting belief you're carrying and go, yeah, but that must've been a fluke because look at this, you know, look at, look at what I'm carrying around, right? All this pain of the past. So that this good thing in my life must not be real because mm. I got this. And so if you let that go and you're, a, you're, you're not going to run anything through that dichotomy anymore, that means whatever happens in your life is yours. It's yours to create the meaning of it. We get to choose. It's not what happens to us. It's what we choose to let it mean. That's what determines who we are. And we can let anything just, there's always enough in whatever's happening to be happy and to, and to have a new great experience of life. There's always enough going on to do that. Beautiful, beautiful. What a Great lesson. I love it. And it's true, man. We just have to make a decision to set it down, to leave it in a dark corner where it belongs and just walk away from it. It's just a right, choice. There's a difference between thoughts and feelings, right? Like, like, yes, you can't just because you have a bad thought, you'll never control your thoughts, right? Like our consciousness is way too complicated for that. You know, I still get, man, I'll line up for a hundred mile race and go, you can't do this. You know, like there's no way you can do this. You know, you, you, you faked all 3,300 milers you've ever finished. You know, like you had these insane doubts, right? Like, like those were flukes. This is the real deal. You're not going to be able to make it. And those thoughts, who knows where they come from? You can't ever get to the point where you try to eliminate negative 
or self-destructive thoughts. But you can like decide what you're going to feed energy to. Yes. Right. Like, like, so if I have a thought like that, I go, well, that was fucking stupid. (laughs) I'm not going to feed that any energy. You know, I I, I, like people say, I always fail. Like you don't always fail. If you always failed, you wouldn't be able to get out of your house in the morning. You'd stab (laughs) your eye with your toothbrush and you'd like not be able to eat. You, you, you're successful all day, every day. You know, but if you keep telling yourself and asking yourself, why do you always fail? You're going to make that your reality. Oh, man, that is beautiful. I love that. I'm going to use that one, by the way. All right. <laughs> I'm using that. I love that analogy. You know what I mean? Like, what do you mean you fail every single day? Right. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to get out of the house. You'd be poking yourself in the eye with. I love that. It's, <laughs> you know, again, I always knew that. I just didn't know. <laughs> I just didn't know. Because the reality is we've all been successful yeah, and yeah. not just in brushing our teeth and getting out of the house. We've all been successful in our lives. We've all been able to do things on occasion, right? Yes, but at the same time, though, sometimes you need the ABCs of giving yourself a pat on the back, yes. right? And just, you know, you're going to have to claim some, you're going to have to claim some wins today just so you can get in the practice of doing it. Yep. You're going to have to accept that you are successful, right? And, and, and we're going to start with small wins so you can learn how to do it. You can't always be on defense, man. Like, and like early on in recovery, especially, you're on defense, right? Oh, yeah. You're, you're just, you're like, you're trying to deflect the blows. You're trying to slip the jabs. You're trying to like not get caught in a chokehold, right? It's all defense. But eventually, you got to start fighting. And, and so you got to start creating positivity in your life. You've got you to start creating positive thoughts and positive actions and building on little successes so that they become big. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So then, so the book, right? Yes. Is this, is this all happening at this time or when did you start writing the book? And more importantly, I'm, I'm curious, a story of ultra recovery. So, so expand a little bit on that. Well, you know, the, the book out there, it's called out there, you know, the, the meaning of that was, was multiple, you know, um, out there is what we say, of course, like when everyone hears you do crazy stuff, they go, that guy's really out there. There's the, the, the more literal sense of out there, like I'm out there in the mountains running, you know? Yep. And then there's the, the most poignant part to me was that whenever you talk about a friend still struggling with addiction we'd always say he's still out there oh man yeah you know so so it had this like triple meaning to me and and then it's a story of ultra recovery because it's really not a running story it's a recovery story but i wanted to put that ultra in there you know because it is an extreme tale not everyone needs to lose 160 pounds or wants to run 135 miles across death valley right like, but we all know instinctively that there is a better version of ourselves. You know, we all know that, that we can break through our limits and become something totally new if we could just find the right leverage and the right situation to do it. So the extreme story kind of hates the, the uh, background for, for any story. For, and, and that's really what I've said all along is like, if I tell my story correctly, or if I say it incorrectly, then people are going to go, wow, you know, that guy's a great runner. I can't believe he, you know, ran 48 hours on a treadmill or, or whatever. That's if I tell it incorrectly. But if I tell it right, they're going to go home and lay in bed and like be scared that they've been selling themselves short. Absolutely. I think that many of us 
we do that on a daily basis. We do that. We sell ourselves short. We don't give ourselves a credit. And we spend too much time comparing ourselves to other people instead of focusing all of our attention on how to become the best version of ourselves because that's what we were here to do in the first place. Absolutely, brother. So then, so now, because I, I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about this documentary you got going on and a little bit about your interview with Rich Roll. Any highlights you want to give us on that? I'm curious. Oh, you know, man. I mean, it's it's really, I've I've had, we did two podcasts together and they were, the two of my favorite conversations, you know, that I've ever had. This um, one getting up there, though. <laughs> <laughs> Win! <laughs> so don't don't make it about you, man. <laughs> this is about us, baby. <laughs> yeah, no. But Rich is like, I mean, he's just such a great guy. And when you get two addicts who who compete in ultra running, talking about what is what is going too far look like when you live in an extreme world, I think that's always going to come up with something kind of cool. And, and my mind is like, we literally finished that interview like an hour before I jumped on this with you. So my mind's still kind of reeling from it, but uh, there was some really cool stuff there, man. Some, some really cool stuff because we were trying to define, we're not trying to answer the question, but we're really trying to, to, to speak to, you know, what is addiction? Can you be addicted to a good thing? You know, do you have to lose yourself in the pursuit of excellence? You know, can you have it all? Can you be peaceful and balanced, but also driven and accomplished? Well, what were some of those takeaways then? Well, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I can give you my takeaway on that. I, I believe you totally can have those, you know, that that it all depends on what you're bringing to, to the, the, the picture, right? Like, if I don't put happiness at the top, then like, let's say I put what kind of an athlete can I be? And that's, that's my drive in life. And I've attached my meaning and my purpose to that. That's never going to be fulfilling because there's never any way to get there. And happiness isn't even in the equation. So I'm going to pursue it at the expense of happiness if I need to. Mm. Right. But if I'm trying to be happy first, that means I'm always going to bring happiness and joy into whatever it is that I'm pursuing. So I think like anything else, running, pursuing a business, trying to become the greatest piano player in the world, whatever it is, those things can be destructive and dark, or they can be, they can bring peace and happiness to your life. And we choose that. It's our intention that we bring, right? It's, it's, it's what is what I'm doing making me better or is it breaking me down? Mm. So I guess to a certain degree, would, I be, would it be fair to assume that it's all about the journey? Yeah. Yeah, it, it is all about the journey, right? Like happiness is, it's the means of travel, right? It's not a place we go to. It's, it's what we bring with us. And if I, ever have, if I ever set my happiness down to pursue something else, then by definition, that thing's never going to make me happy. How can it? Yes. You know, I, ha- I had it. I had it before, you know, like, so for me, like I, 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 with running early on, I learned that running had to be a reflection of my recovery and not a reflection of my addiction. Nice. That if I had, if my running was compulsive and I had to do it, and if I didn't do it, I was going to be missing something and there'd be a gap in it, then I'm doing it wrong. You have to wear it like a loose garment. 
Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so then what's your takeaway? You know, I want to get into the closing questions here in a minute. But, you know, uh, for me, what I've learned in my journey or along my path is that happiness is always a choice. You know, my higher power, the God of my understanding, the only thing that he wants for me is to be happy. You know, that is my belief. And again, I believe that it's a choice. But that happiness is also fleeting and that that fulfillment that fulfillment is the key to happiness how how do you feel about that statement well so by fulfillment do you mean do you mean purpose yes yes like like you know what is it that what is it that thing that that you know what's the purpose you know your purpose for running like you said it's not you know um it i bring happiness first i think that purpose is also means of travel in other words I think the purpose in life is to have purpose in life. That I think that what we're doing is less important than the fact that we're we're doing something actively with our life and our time and our experience, right? Like to me, trying to positively impact and affect others, regardless of, of what you're doing, is going to bring with it that happiness. And happiness to me is not fleeting. It's joy is fleeting, right? Like we, we experience joy. I can experience joy buying a car, but it's going to go away. And I can experience joy even in getting married, and that can go away. But happiness is always there. You might feel sadness, but you don't have to become sad. You know, you might feel anger, but you don't have to become angry. The happiness is that, that perpetual state. And when we find a happiness that can't be taken from us, then we have something because other than that, it's always going to be a, a never ending game. You know, what's always going to be constantly tried to be ripped from us. But the only way happiness leaves us is if we hand it over. I am glad you said that. And the reason why it is is because I've given this example before, like when I'm teaching classes. And so my example of the fleeting was the example you gave for joy. So maybe maybe I need to, to do a little more research. But I said, if I give you $1,000 right now, would you be happy? And you know, they all say, yeah, 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 yeah. And then if I give you that $1,000 right now and said you could do whatever you wanted with it, and you ran out that door and smoked a bunch of crack rock with it, how long are you going to be happy? Well, not very long. Not very yeah. long. But what if you take that same $1,000 that you're happy with, and you decide to take everybody here in this room all right, that you're you know, getting in, in rehab with and you guys seem to be getting along and you decide to go have a nice meal and you spend like three hours together and you have something to remember for the rest of your life. Like, what do you, how, you know, how, how is that going to sit with you, right? Like, is that, that's fulfilling, right? That's different, yeah. right? And so that's where, my, that's where my analogy comes in as far as, you know, your fulfillment. I just took care of a bunch of people. I just, I, I just, I just spent this money to create a memory, a beautiful memory that we can all share together for the rest of our lives that fills me and and so that's kind of where my takeaway was oh man and i couldn't agree more actually you know what i mean like the the whole reason we're here is in my mind is to have experiences they're the only real things we have and like to your point you know if if i buy a gift for someone and it's like the perfect gift they always wanted right it's like the thing from their childhood christmas that they never got and you found it somewhere and you wanted to surprise them and you bought it for them, I would remember giving that person that gift forever. 
they would remember getting that gift forever, just like you said. But the gift itself, it's going to be in the junkyard in five years. Yes. But the actual, the real part was the me doing something for you and you accepting the gift. That was the real thing. The toy is like gone. It's rusting. It's what we do. We build these beautiful memories by giving and impacting people every day which is something that I, I strive for every single day is to, is to leave a mark and to impact the people around me on a daily basis. And you are, my friend. And like, that's, that's the beautiful thing, right? If we're not helping others, like what's the fucking point? We're wasting time. Yes, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. All right, David. Well, listen, we're going to start to close up, but I want our listeners to be able to reach out to you. So yes. first of all, what's the best way for them to reach you? And then tell us about... Once again, the book, what you're working on, what to look out for next. Yeah, so just to kind of put the final touch on the, the documentary Hellbent, really we want to have a conversation. You know, we've interviewed Pat Militich, uh, UFC fighters. Um, I'm talking to Stone Cold Steve Austin tomorrow. We've got uh, musicians, uh, sports psychologists, and we just want to have a conversation about the addiction and extremism of you know, our culture from as many different perspectives as possible. So that's kind of what we're doing with the doc. Um, I do have a, a new book that hopefully I should be be done writing by the end of this year. I was supposed to wrap it up way earlier than that, but it took a uh, took an unexpected turn. <laughs> um, and in that book, I, I really kind of approach um, how how important failure is, mm. not just being willing to risk failure, but the actual failure itself. Um, and I talk about a lot about my divorce and about failing in some big races and, and stuff like that. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, the first book was really a story about recovery with a little bit of running in it. And there's a lot of running in the, in the newer book too. So, um, that's going on and, you know, I'm just, uh, just being a dad, man. Just, um, I'm one of the reasons why I'm in LA is to take my daughter around to film schools and, and, uh, She's uh, just a, a junior in high school now, but she's already kind of looking at what she wants to do. And and um, that's it, man. Just uh, just trying to experience whatever is in front of me nice. better than now. Yeah. And if our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to, to contact you? We Are Superman is my Twitter, my Instagram, my website, wearesuperman.com. That's the easiest way. You can. There's an email link on there. Um, I will respond, you know, um, it sometimes takes me a little while if I'm a little backed up, but I'm, 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 I'm a responder. Like I, those, those aren't distractions. Those are gifts for me to be able to, to stand in the light a little bit for anyone who thinks that, um, that, um, that I might have something to offer them. I'm willing to talk. So if you're out there and you're listening, um, don't be shy, shoot me an email, reach out on Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Beautiful. I will have all those listed on the show notes, folks. So please, if you want to get a hold of David, get onto those show notes and all his contact information, all the social media will be listed. Coming to a cage near you. <laughs> I can't wait to see that. That's going to be awesome. Is that going to be like in one of the main UFC platforms, like on, on national television? Probably not UFC. Like Pat is the voice for the LFA and he does all their TV on Access TV. So we're talking about doing it there. Um, we've been actually trying to set up a fight with Mr. CM Punk 
I'm calling him out again on another podcast to fight me. I will even I will even fight him in the boxing ring. We could put on the gloves and go Mayweather McGregor, you know, like whatever, man. But we could duke it out because he's a straight edge guy. And um, we could like really, you know, put something out there for the recovery world and for kids and show them a powerful example of being drug free and alcohol free. And but yet still living a really extreme kind of cool life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. All right. So, folks, you know the way I like to close up and I like to close up for the newcomer. So, David, I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery and I want you to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? No, but no pressure. No, absolutely not. I think you can handle it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, David, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? You know, the, struggling with the concept of labels. You know, I didn't want to call myself an alcoholic because that made me feel weak. And honestly, the, the first time I, I ever really accepted it was the strongest moment of my entire life. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. And number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you are powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? If you read the very first page of my book, I was lying on my bathroom floor. I had just got through vomiting, blood, and bile, which was unfortunately not that uncommon. <laughs> and um, no. I looked up, I looked up, and I said, "Help me!" And I said it out loud. And I wasn't sure who I was saying it to, but that's when I realized I, I'm, this is too big for me. I, I can't beat it. I can't do it. Man, that is beautiful. I can relate. I have been there. Not about the bile, but <laughs> I remember that prayer. <laughs> and then, it, was, it might not have been like literal bile. <laughs> but the blood comes across strong. Yeah, man. <laughs> All right. So, David, what is a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers? Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. It's the book... I would say I wish it was the book I read like 15 years before I got sober, but I guess the more accurate thing would be to say I wish I would have been ready to read that book 15 years before I got sober. Beautiful. And don't forget, folks, Out There, A Story of Ultra Recovery by David Clark. That's a good one, too. That is an excellent book. Get in there. All right. So, number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? You know, when I was getting ready to do the Badwater 135, which for those of you that don't know, that's a 135-mile race across Death Valley in the summertime. Ugh, Jesus. It was 130 degrees. It was really, it sounds kind of funny to say, but it was really the first time where the concept of death (laughs) actually (laughs) came into my mind in terms of a run. Like, are we talking death here? (laughs) And, uh... My friend Brian Remington, who is, uh, I think he's 13 years sober now, looked across me the night before the race and he said, you know what, this isn't the hardest thing you've ever done. And that suggestion of strength of getting clean versus just choosing to do a run has stayed with me ever since. That is awesome. That is awesome. Awesome. I love it. It's it's so true, man. It's so true. 
You know, we we really, really faced that dragon many times. Yeah, this is just a fucking run, man. I, I paid money to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still Death Valley. I ain't going to take that away. <laughs> I'm not going to oh, yeah, take I, that I, away. I, I hate to be a spoiler, but I die in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So finally, number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? You know, it would be don't try to figure it out. You know, don't try to break it down and compartmentalize it and and wrestle every negative thought down into submission. You know, just take the first step forward. Moving away is much more important than even where you're headed. I love it. Thank you so much, David. Wow, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome, man. It was, it was really cool. I really appreciate being on. Man, I, the pleasure is all <laughs> mine, man. And I got to tell you, I don't know how you keep all that energy going. You have been nonstop all day. You know, it must be that <laughs> runner energy. <laughs> plants, man. Plants. like <laughs> plants. Yeah, yeah. That's what they... Okay, so 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 part of the, the, the game-changing uh, aspects of, of all your recovery was going plant-based. It was really more of the athlete side of me. Um, I'd already lost the weight without doing that, you know, right. but I wanted to try to turn my body into a machine. And, and I'll be honest, I did it purely for sports performance reasons. Like, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that I think I joked one time that I would club a baby seal if I thought it'd make me faster. <laughs> and I'm quite ashamed of that say, statement now, but at the time I was just trying to be a better athlete and, you know, it's, it's slowly morphed into something completely different where now it's all about compassion and mm. it's all about knowing that nothing has to die for me to thrive, you know, that I can live an empowered, awesome, energetic life and no animal has to die because of it. So like everything else, man, it was a, it was a slow evolution. It started as one thing and it grew into something that brought peace and happiness to me. Perfect place to close. <laughs> Perfect place to close. <laughs> All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.